podcast. Thank you for having me, Joe. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, national columnist for NBC Sports, and with me, as always, Michael Shore, executive producer of Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine Nine, and recent winner of Super Bowl XL, whatever it was, Super Bowl Forty Nine. Congratulations, yeah. congratulations to you. Thank you. I I think I played a pretty key role <laughs> in the victory, and so I'm going to take that congratulations as, as meaningful. We are uh, we are going to have our full argument in a second, and then and then a very uh, direct draft. Um, but but I think it, it it we have to begin with this. Boston as a sports town, not as a wonderful educational uh, place that it is, a wonderful cultural place that it is, wonderful people, all that. Boston purely as a sports town must stop doing this. <laughs> this <laughs> do we do we not feel like? I mean, even you have to see this is just absolutely ridiculous oh it's absurd <laughs> uh, you know it really is and you know my son is almost uh, seven years old and he's now very casually witnessed uh you know a world series championship like an afterthought world series <laughs> that's their third who cares and the patriots have played in whatever four championship games and won the super bowl and you know when he won this i was at the game when I came home, I was I was saying to him, like, were you excited? And he was like, yeah, it was so exciting and whatever. And then, like, just life went on for him as, like, a six-year-old who just <laughs> his team wins the Super Bowl. And, and you know, if he cared at this point about basketball or hockey, he would have also seen a Stanley Cup and a, a fairly recent NBA championship. It's really insane. I, I, I'm acutely aware, and I've said this before, I and most – Boston sports fans are acutely aware of how absurd this is and how we'll never have it this good and how most cities will never get close to this. And we feel incredibly lucky. Like it really is. It's an amazing run that, uh, you know, from there was a sign. You actually sent me the the link to a photo (laughs) of a kid. What did it say? It said uh, 13 years old, 11 11 parades is that what it said? <laughs> I think it was, yeah or nine maybe it was nine parades i can't remember how many parades it was but. yeah yeah it's 11 right it's four it's four super bowls three world series i guess it's nine right it's nine. four super bowls three world series a stanley cup and an nba championship um that's insane and it, and it i you know i said to my friends who were who were patriots fans after 2003 after the second super bowl win this team never has to give me anything again for the rest of my life and i'm perfectly happy like the the fact that they won two Super Bowls in three years felt like this is this is it can't get any better than this. I don't care if they ever win again. And since then, they won twice more, and the Red Sox have won three times, and it just keeps going. Like I mean, eventually Brady will retire, and Belichick will retire, and eventually, you know, the Red Sox will have a, a fallow period, a sustained fallow period, and whatever, and it'll be fine. <laughs> everyone, <laughs> everyone will be fine with it because of what's gone on over the last 15 years. It's, it's amazing. And it really is amazing that it has come precisely at the time that New York sports has just fallen off the cliff. I mean, just completely, you know, I mean, obviously the Yankees didn't win in 09. That's not that long ago, but it's so bad now in New York for all sports teams, other than like the Islanders, which, you know, is nobody even knows where they're going to be playing. Um, yep. It's so bad. It's so bad for them right now. And of course, nobody outside of New York cares. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying that there's a there's a feeling of sorry uh, for them. But but with the Yankees really on the decline, the Mets just being kind of the Mets, 
the Giants and Jets both having dismal seasons. Yeah. Um, the Knicks being maybe the worst team in the NBA. It's 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 really is there is some sort of weird counterbalance thing going on with Boston and New York where it's like one only one can be happy. I think <laughs> yeah, that might be right. It might be like there needs to be balance in the force or something, right? <laughs> but you know, it'll turn around for New York. Obviously, they have they have the two things that you need to to have sustained success, which are a ton of money and a very large fan base who cares and. You know the the Knicks is tricky because as long as Dolan owns that team, I don't know how they how they really climb out of the hole. But the Yankees, even the Mets, the Mets have great young pitching now. The Giants, you know, the Giants haven't. They either are terrible or win the Super Bowl. It's really weird, <laughs> like the Marlins. Yeah, and the Jets, like who knows what's going to happen to the Jets? But the Jets, ha- like if they had had a quarterback during Rex Ryan's run. Are you telling me they wouldn't have won the Super Bowl? Of course they would have. Like he had—he's a genius. That guy. He had an amazing defense. They had the best defense in the world. That defense carried Mark Sanchez to two AFC Championship games. It's gonna—I think it can turn around pretty quickly, especially in the NFL, where you can go five and eleven and then be in the championship game the next year. Like it, you know, it's not quite like that in baseball usually. Although ironically, the Red Sox just went worse to first to win again. So, it, but it's it's a lot tougher to do uh, in other sports than it is in football. I think if you get a great quarterback, you know the Colts are going to be in the playoffs every single year, barring injury to Andrew Luck for the next fifteen years. And so, it's really about getting a good quarterback. And if they get a good quarterback, if any of those teams gets a good quarterback, then they can be right back there in the hunt. So, um, I mean, by the way, the the real bottom line here is like I couldn't be happier. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what we're getting from this. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to like be rational about this and everything. But as a fan, New York stinking and Boston being great <laughs> after my entire youth growing up in Hartford was the opposite. It couldn't be better. It really couldn't be better. And I'm going to allow myself a small amount of happiness for the flip side of the coin that I'm cur- that currently keeps coming up heads for me year after year in every single sport. Yeah, as well as well you should. I mean, you, what are you going to do? Not enjoy it? I mean, this is this is what it is. So, um, all right. So we we're going to have our faux argument, and our faux argument is going to be built around the Super Bowl. Uh, we were both there uh, in different places. You obviously were there in the in the stands. Uh, cheering and I was in the press box uh, doing whatever it is we're supposed to do up there. And, and so here's my question to you. Okay. We all know, and I I think we can all agree on this. We all know that Bill Belichick is a big fat cheater. Okay. So that's, (laughs) that's a given. Okay. We start with that. So my question to you is when do the rumors begin about hypnosis gate? Because I'm, I'm convinced that, some sort of hypnosis came over Pete Carroll for that last play. And I know Bill Belichick did it. I don't know how he did it, but I know he did it. And, and it was cheating. I, I, I do, I do believe that. And I, I think it's going to start. So the last play you're in the, in the stands watching that, that Pete Carroll, uh, I don't even know what, how you would even describe it. What's going through your mind? Well, first of all, in politics, um, you're taught, uh, to, to basically, when someone presents a question that's a trap, <laughs> you're you're taught to basically reject the premise of the question right, first, right, instead right. of trying to answer the question. Because by answering it, you seem to tacitly be giving <laughs> legitimacy to it. So, Bill Belichick's not a cheater. That's of course, he's not. I'm joking. Say. But um, even though I know you were joking, um, but uh, you know, here's 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 my defense of that play call. Okay. 
Um, I think that the way he explained it, and by the way, I'm not a huge Pete Carroll fan. Uh, I am frequently sending the animated gif of him smacking on his gum in a super cocky fashion to all of my friends who are Seahawks fans whenever they annoy me. And I'm not a huge fan of his as a dude, but I thought he was incredibly – I thought, first of all, he coached an amazing game. I thought, you know, Russell Wilson didn't have a completion for a quarter and a half. And the Patriots were doing things on defense that were very much stymieing the the somewhat suspect Seattle offense. And I thought Carroll just absolutely came up with an amazing game plan. And he played it like a guy with nothing to lose, which is exactly how you have to coach in a Super Bowl. And I thought he I thought he was I had a great game. And then I thought he I even liked him more in what he did after the game was over by throwing himself in front of the uh, train and taking the the blame. Um, his offensive coordinator <laughs> threw through his receiver under the bus, which wasn't super cool. And I thought the way Carroll handled himself by that was great. I don't think, from what I can tell, I don't think he quite actually um, explained himself as clearly as I think he was, what he was trying to say. You know, they came out, they had three plays left and one timeout in about 30 seconds, right? So the defense of the play to me is you you come out on second down and the Patriots are in a goal line defense they eventually switched to goal line three corners. That's when Butler came into the game was when they realized that there were three wide receivers. You've come out in a three wide receiver offense, right? So in that situation, you have a, a, a preternaturally cool quarterback who rarely makes mistakes, NFC Championship game notwithstanding. He rarely makes mistakes. And you have three wide receivers, and you're run, if you run the ball, you're running into the teeth of a goal line defense. It's not the craziest thing in the world to me to say, like, okay, on second down, I'm going to call a pass play that's worked for us many times in the past. And if the ball, if it's incomplete or we get stopped, then we, the clock is stopped and we run it twice with Marshawn Lynch. That's not the craziest thing in the world to me. You know, it's, it's not like, I think it's very easy to say, and, and for obvious reasons, you have Marshawn Lynch, you need one yard, give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. But part of coaching in the NFL is zigging when people expect you to zag and vice versa. And when he came out with that matchup, I don't think he was worried. I think he was excited. I think what he saw is they expect us to run. They're in a goal line rush defense. They've got eight defensive tackles and linebackers stacked at the line. We've got three wide receivers. They only have two good cornerbacks. We're going to throw the ball. I don't think that's a crazy play. I really don't. Like It's not nearly as you know the, the sensationalistic aftermath of is this the worst call in NFL history, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's nonsense. Like, I think that that's a play. If Russell Wilson puts that ball a little more on Lockett's back shoulder, that's a touchdown and the game's over. Or if he, if, you know, if they audible to a fade or a, a, you know, an outside slant instead of an inside slant or whatever, that's a touchdown. The game's over. Like, I think Butler made an amazing play, like a once in a lifetime play. And I don't think, I think the play call was like, you know, at least 30% defensible based on the alignments. That's all it is. That's all football is, is like seeing what your opponents are doing and trying to adjust. And I think that he saw eight guys at the line of scrimmage and thought like, oh, I'm going to throw the ball. I have a great quarterback. I'm going to throw the ball. I don't think it's that crazy. How do you feel? Well, I agree with you to a point, to to a certain point. Um, here's what I think. I mean, I, I think all of the things you said are right. And I think there's, there's uh, another element, which is because they only had one timeout left, if they were going to run three plays, they were going to have to throw on one of those plays. 
in, right. in, in order to do it without the time. So you're either running on second down or you're the passing ball rather on second down or third down, uh, right. assuming you don't get in on, on, on one of those plays. So in that sense, yes, it's defensible in, in the way that you describe it, which is, okay, look, we're going to have to pass on one of these downs anyway. We're not going to get a better passing matchup than we have here in second down. Um, we obviously they put in the three receivers, so they were putting it into a position where they were going to give themselves that passing option when the, the Patriots came out in, in their goal line anyway, I think it was an automatic pass in some ways. Right. And, and so it's defensible along those lines. However, in my opinion, not defensible to send three receivers out there in the first place, you have to score the touchdown. And you have to give your best player. I, look, you can absolutely say Marshawn Lynch could have gotten the ball, and even though he doesn't fumble, maybe he fumbles. I mean, right? I mean, there's there's things can go wrong, and you don't you don't make calls based on the once in a lifetime that that Russell Wilson's going to throw an interception on that play. Right. I mean, I get that, but what I don't what I don't believe you can ever overcome is you. This is the Super Bowl. And it's to win or lose it. And I think they were way too worried about the clock. I think they were way too worried about matchups. I think they were way... They needed to put the ball in the end zone and their best chance to do it was to put Marshawn Lynch the ball, in my opinion. I think you're right. I Like, ultimately, like I said, I think it's 30% defensible. I think that, you know, ordinarily you would say... Try to try to catch them by surprise or whatever. But really, the, the maxim that holds true the most often for almost any sport is in a situation like that, you give the ball to your best player, right? Like that, you give the ball to Jordan or you give it to Kevin Durant or whatever. And and Marshawn Lynch in that situation is your best player. And I, I don't think that, I don't think there's any, you know, um, X's and O's kind of evaluation that would ever get me to say that I think it was a better choice to throw the ball right, than it right. would have been to just hand it to, to a guy who cannot be tackled by other human <laughs> beings. Like, and, and that, and you know, I if he if he the, you give the ball to him and he stopped you call a timeout and then you probably call two plays in the huddle the first is another running play to Lynch that if it's stopped you run to the line and you have like a you roll Wilson out to the right and you drag seven tight ends across the middle and hope that one of them is open or something and I think that is a better that would have been better like I I do think it would have been better but I also don't think that it was zero percent. Uh, defensible. I think that I, I get. I think I get why he did it, and I think that he, you know, next to Marshawn Lynch, your next best player is Russell Wilson, and I don't think it's a crazy idea to put the ball in his hands and leave him with the decision because he's an incredible quarterback who makes incredible decisions and is and never takes sacks and or rarely and is has great scrambling ability. And so on that play in that situation, I don't. I just I, I, the only thing I'm really trying to say is. I think it was far from the worst call yeah. in NFL history. I don't think it was the right call, but I don't think it was the worst call. Well, I mean, I don't. I, no calls come to mind that were as significant, right, or as important. Yes. I mean, that's you're you're only once in your career you can have one play to win or lose the Super Bowl, right? Yeah. My feeling on it is that there are numerous layers that I disagree with. So the decision to pass is one decision. The decision to run that particular play where you don't put Russell Wilson in motion, don't give him the option to, to, to run the ball in the end zone if he's open, uh, yeah. is another. To cut off really kind of half the field the way they did with that play is another decision. So 
I just felt like in a large, you know, if you put it all into one bowl, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty bad football. And I really think it was, it was, you know, he said like, well, you guys can say we're overthinking. I think they were overthinking. I think that's exactly what happened. I think if that's a regular season game in, uh, you know, in, in October, uh, against the Atlanta Falcons or something, and, you know, people will still make a big deal out of it. You know, on TV, they'll they'll talk about, oh, and they throw it and intercept it. But it wasn't. It was the Super Bowl, and the game was on the line. The world, the Super Bowl was on the line. Legacy of this team was on the line. Every, everybody knew how big a moment it was. And in that moment, you know, you let Jimmy Chitwood shoot the last shot, right? I mean, that's the yeah. that's the thing. And, and, and you'll never get that back. And look, it... It easily could have been an incomplete pass. It easily could have been a touchdown. It easily could have been anything. But, an, and, and by the way, Malcolm Butler will never get enough credit for that play. It's it's almost inhuman what he did. It right? really is. Like, the more you watch it, the more unlikely it seems. Right. Like it, has, it has the reverse effect on multiple watchings where it, you ke- I keep watching and expecting to understand what happened. And I, and every, the more I see it, the less I understand how he jumps that route. I mean, that's a route, by the way, you know, that's a, obviously a short yardage route, but that a, a version of that play is being run 20 times a game. Sure. It's, it's just a little pick play where the one guy drives his guy backwards and creates a little space and to have the ability to recognize it so quickly. And he commits so early that if that play, if, if Lockett, breaks off you know fakes takes one step inside and heads into the flat then he's open by 40 yards right (laughs) and he just i mean it's one of those kind of instinctual athletic just recognition plays that you that you just dream about it's like i mean if you if that were the the series finale of friday night lights you would have been like yeah it's a little cheesy but i get it (laughs) you know like it was it's it, that's and I think that's the other thing Carol was obviously trying to say was like that guy made a championship play like it's a it you know he he jumped a route he he figured it out he he beat the receiver to the ball and he caught the ball and I you know I think he should have I think ninety nine times out of a hundred you're right he shouldn't overthink it he should hand the ball to the best running back the most untackleable running back and you know the other thing to say about that is obviously. You hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch twice or three times in that situation, and he doesn't get in. No one's upset. Seattle right. fans aren't upset. They just they're like, yeah, all right, well, they beat us. <laughs> and in this case, they have an argument that it was a bad call. So yeah, sure. sure. And I, I would think that's that's a pretty good argument that they have <laughs> that it was yeah. a bad call. And and by the way, I should also point out, Ricardo Lockett uh, has 18 catches in his NFL career, right? Yeah. Regular season career. He's caught a few more in the in the playoffs, but. I even if you call that play, you can't call it to Ricardo Lockett. I mean, that yeah. again, I think you're eighty seven percent right here. But here's the thirteen percent: is they Chris Matthews had one hundred and nine receiving yards and <laughs> never caught a pass in his life. Like that's the way Pete Carroll coaches games. He doesn't. And in fact, it's weirdly Belichickian. I would say he doesn't care about stuff like that. He goes with matchups. He goes with guys. He he's a, a very good strategic coach who figures out I mean they had Chris Matthews is whatever he is 6364 and Kyle Arrington is 510 and so he's like oh I know how to do this you run down the field really fast and Russell put the ball up really high and then you jump up and catch it like and it worked four times for 40 yards 30 yards at a time like 
I don't think he I don't think that that aspect of it would bother Pete Carroll. I really don't because they don't have a guy on their team except for Doug Baldwin who has any like real track record of catching a lot of passes and Doug Baldwin was covered by Darrell Revis and was completely shut down the entire game except for one play when the ref threw an illegal <laughs> pick on Darrell Revis in the end zone. So, you know, I again I, I don't I don't know that that I don't know that that Carroll would care about that. And if I were a Seattle fan, I wouldn't care about that. He's on the team. He's a professional football player. It's a three-yard pass from, like, it's, you know, the ball is traveling, you know, eight yards in the air. That's a pass that every, you know, every wide receiver in the NFL can can catch. I don't think that aspect of it matters that much. I think the play call is is the thing. And in terms of the play call, you know, I think he probably made the wrong one. Yeah, well, I I think he probably did, I, and I would disagree with you to a to an extent though, on the on the locket thing. First of all, the the, the Matthews stuff, what it reminded me of was why haven't they done that before? Why? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean I, yeah, he he was six three like last week also, right? I mean, so <laughs> and really fast. Uh, so I don't I didn't get that, but more more to the point, it it did come down to. I mean, I don't know that that. Randy Moss or Jerry Rice or anybody else makes a huge difference there. But Ricardo Lockett got knocked off that ball pretty – I mean, he did not – I don't agree with the offensive coordinator throwing him under the bus like that. But there, that wasn't without any substance at all. The, Lockett really did not make a good play on that ball at all. You're right. But the guy who makes a stronger play on that ball is like Des Bryant. And they don't have Des well, Bryant. That's true. Team. You know, like they, they don't have a guy who's – Six three, like two forty five, like you know, giant, you know, you know, giant frame wide receiver. They just don't have that guy. So that's why you don't call that play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. That's that. Ultimately, you're right. And I also like to point out it's now been fifteen minutes, so we should end our faux argument. But this may be the first time that the faux argument actually was kind of a real argument. We it's, kind of disagreed on that. Yeah, we, we kind of disagreed. But, yeah, by between thirteen and thirty percent, we kind of agreed on something. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go on to the draft then. It's time uh, time to go to the draft. Well, it's past time to go to go on to the draft. And uh, I would say that this this week's draft, we've done even less work like in preparation or in thought than we did last week, last I, uh, I, podcast. I'm kidding. I've given this almost no thought. <laughs> I really haven't. I'm, I don't even really have my draft choices numbered. I'm going to kind of just fly. I'm going to Pete Carroll this. I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants and see what happens. Well, I think I think that's the way that these are supposed to be done. So, um, so our draft uh, this this uh, podcast is fears. We are drafting fears, right? Right. It's un- and it's unclear whether that means what are the fears you'd most want to have. What are the best <laughs> fears? What are the worst fears? It's, it's very unclear what it means. It's very unclear. It might be what fears you do have, which I'm is how I had it. Um, okay. So we are going to uh, draft fears, and I believe. You have the first pick. Am I am I right about that? I have no idea. I think I'm right about that. <laughs> Your team won the Super Bowl. You can have the first pick. I chose to uh, I chose to approach this from the point of view of like what are the like most what are like the best fears like what are the most intense kind of like what are the most fearful fears I guess okay that's okay. that's how I looked at this I don't know if that's right or not so with that said number one I'm choosing fear of death yeah. uh, most obvious choice. It's the fear that every human being on earth has. It's also the most irrational fear because it happens to everyone. So like (laughs) in terms of like fears being things that are irrational, it's the most overwhelmingly irrational thing. You're everyone 
is living a little bit in fear of something happening to him that is going to happen to them. <laughs> so, uh, and it also is a sort of it's a, it's very um, uh, all encompassing, right? It, it all most other fears are at some level just gateways to the fear of death. I would say, <laughs> right? If you if you're afraid of heights, what you're really afraid of is falling off something tall and dying. So, right. I, it's the most all encompassing in general. It's almost a little bit of a cheat to take it, but I'm going with death at number one. Well, I think I think it's good. It's, good. it's sort of like it's sort of like black encompasses all colors. So I right. think I think fear of death more or less. Although some fears that I have on mine have nothing to do with death, but but. Uh, for the most part, just about every fear has some death in it, some ways, right. and and it's the it's the right. I think it's the right choice, by the way, at number one. And and my question about fear of death is, at what point is it actually a fear, like like an actual like phobia? Like, how often do you have to be afraid of death? Because like nobody's like really looking forward to death. Like, they're just <laughs> don't have any fear of that at all. That's awesome. Right. Uh, nobody's like that. So at what point do you think fear of death becomes a phobia, an actual actual clinical fear of death? That's a good question. And as you know, I received an MD, uh, a PhD in clinical psychology from, uh, from Stuttgart University in Germany. And <laughs> thus, I'm highly qualified to speak on this. And I, I would say that it's probably... Uh, it probably becomes an actual fear, like a diagnosable fear, when it begins to impede your behavior in some meaningful way, right? If you right. like, if you like, can't function in, in a in a very basic way, like on Earth, you can't leave your house, get food, eat, form a relationship, whatever. My guess, my wild, unfounded guess, is that that's what would be that's when it would be diagnosed as a fear of death. But okay. I have no, I literally, I literally have no idea. <laughs> that's, but that sounded so good. That really sounded. I was, I was thoroughly taken all right well fear of death is an excellent choice um i'm going my fears are a little bit different my fears are fears that uh that in some way involve my life in, okay. in general um so my first fear is uh is astrophobia i did i did do enough research to look this up which is fear of lightning and thunder and and the reason that i've chosen that is uh my kids suffer from this as all kids basically on earth do right and Here's here's what I don't know what to do about. They, they they're you know they're getting a little bit older now and they're, it's not quite as bad as it used to be. But fear of something like lightning is totally rational. It is a totally rational fear. You there is there is electricity coming out of the sky, right? That can kill you because mm-hmm. it just happens to hit you. So that is totally legitimate fear. And Yet as a parent, you have to be like, no, it's okay. It's but you're, it's not really okay at all. But you still have to comfort them, and 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 at some point when they refuse to go to sleep, tell them things like, oh well, it's impossible for lightning to hit this house because we have lightning rods all over the house. This was right. my big one was the lightning rod thing, uh, which I don't believe we do have actually at the house. I don't. <laughs> I don't even know if they're really I, – that was what I was told when I was a kid and was scared of lightning. So I've used the lightning rod thing, and I don't believe it's real. And we absolutely could get hit by lightning. That is that is, that is is totally a fear. They should be afraid of that. So not, not to the extent that it keeps them from sleeping, but I've got to tell them like, oh, that's a completely irrational fear. And it's not. It's totally rational. It is a totally rational fear. 
And, and I, I feel like, uh, it forces me to just lie to my own children. Essentially. Yeah. Well, you know, living in Los Angeles, I grew up in, in the Northeast where there's, you know, thunderstorms all the time. And now I am in Los Angeles. There's never lightning or thunder and it very, very rarely. And just to like, a, I don't know, a week and a half ago or something crazily, we had in the general area of a thunderstorm. And it wasn't like a New, a New England thunderstorm or a Chicago thunderstorm, but it was like a thunderstorm. Sure, sure. And my four-year-old daughter, the first time she heard thunder, looked at me and my wife like, what the <laughs> hell was that? Like, and I was like, oh, right. Like by the time I was four, I had heard thunder and been scared by thunder a million times. But for, for like a person to get to like a point of like, con- she's almost, you know, she's four and a half. To get to like a point of decent um, level of consciousness and never have heard that sound—that's a terrifying sound. It's a very scary sound. So I, I'm, I—it's an unconventional choice, but um, but I, I think it's a good one. All right, I'm going to go with it. I, I realize I'm going high with it, but you know what? I'm like in this draft, I'm going to be a lot like Belichick. I don't, I don't care what's on the board. I'm, I'm picking my players. You've, you've done your own research and you have your own value to these people. I think that's good. <laughs> Um, my number two fear, which is very personal to me, is, is um, I'm going to classify it as global pandemic, basically like a, a virus or a, uh, just uh, the, yeah. essentially what it amounts to actually is the breakdown of society. Like that's what that's a, that's a big fear for me, like the virus that gets loose or the like or the, the massive earthquake that sort of like causes everything to just go into like Blade Runner dystopia. That's <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but um I have this, I, you know, I, I have worked on Parks and Recreation now where uh, I'm actually currently editing the series finale. So it really is like the end of something right now. And we've had this debate in our writer's room. Um, if like the, the, if the earthquake hits or the virus gets loose and like society breaks down, what do you do? Do you go find Chris Pratt or do you go find Nick Offerman? <laughs> those are the, those two <laughs> actors who on the show. Chris Pratt is like a very... He first of all, he's a superhero. He plays Star Lord in the Guardians of the Galaxy, and he's going to be in Jurassic World, like like fighting dinosaurs. And he's a he's an active sportsman. He goes hunting all the time, and he just and he's like a just a big, strong, like charismatic leader type. And so some people are like I go find Pratt. Pratt will get me to safety. Other people would think I'm going to go find Nick Offerman. He can like build me a canoe and <laughs> and float me to safety. And I. I it's it's now not it was obviously a joke conversation we were having but now I think that's what I think about that all the time I think about like Nick likes me Nick will save me if the global pandemic comes I'm gonna grab my wife and my kids and I'm gonna go to Nick Offerman's house and hope and just hope that he has an extra canoe and he can help me like forage off the land uh, while society just collapses around me I am totally with you on uh, choosing Nick Offerman off of Chris yeah. over Chris Pat if the world comes to an end or is coming to an end. Which I, you know, was exactly what I thought I was going to say during this this podcast. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no question. You want here's here's this is sort of my version of that fear. My version of that fear is everything breaks, everything because right. I don't because I don't know how to do anything, and I don't know that anybody else does. I mean, there are people like Nick Offerman and my dad who can like, oh well, in order to fix that, you just turn this and move that. I can't. I can do nothing. I have yeah. no skill on that level whatsoever so if everything breaks i mean if my computer breaks i'm completely useless i have no i have no way to even know how to fix that much less anything else so definitely you want to go for the person who who knows how to like survive right yeah 
yeah. yeah, I think I think that's the right call. But the the larger point, though, is that it's a, I I think about the global pandemic breakdown of society a lot, and uh, and it's a very it's a very scary thing. Like, and and what it amounts to in practical terms is exactly that. It's like if if the, like when there's a when there's like a blackout in my neighborhood. Uh, I'm completely useless. <laughs> like I have no, I don't know where the flashlights are. I don't know where the go bag is. I don't know where the candles are. I can't light them. The matches are soggy. I mean, it's a disaster. So that the idea that like there would be that, but more serious is terrifying to me. By the way, how does it end? What, what, what is, what is the worst? What is the sort of most likely scenario for this global pandemic? I, to me, well, I, I would have said virus. I think I probably still say virus um, at this point. But I, 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 I think like long term, it may just be like it may be climate change. It just may be like you know, like just massive, you know, the day after that movie, the day after tomorrow, that kind of scenario where like there's a crazy superstorm and then a giant super volcano and then like all of you know South America becomes uninhabitable and then there's just mass migration, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I could see that. I, I've played out a number of these scenarios in my head in pretty pretty elaborate detail, so we can talk after the podcast about uh, the various uh, situations we're going to be facing. Yeah. By the way, I I totally that's a that's a that's a excellent fear. Good pick at number two for fears, um, and and totally agree. I cannot even see movies where where uh, virus is. I can't like that whatever that Dustin Hoffman thing. I never saw that. I won't see it. That's I don't yeah. like that. That's way too possible. Like I'm, I'm good with like really crazy movies where look, I don't believe that we're going to end up in the Hunger Games. I don't think that's real, but I'm, I'm not seeing a movie with viruses. I'm just not seeing it. <laughs> All right, so excellent pick at number two. I think uh, I'm going to go with um, uh, with my number two. I, I believe I've I've written down and my handwriting is so bad. I believe it's borophobia. I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Borophobia is the fear of gravity. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's not a fear, by the way. That I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm, look, I'm scared of everything. That's not a fear. Fear no. of gravity. That's not. That's not legitimate. Gravity's not going anywhere. Um, I'm going straight out with the fear of failure. Um, oh. I, I think it's. I think it's like the. It's probably the most uh, devastating fear, like in real time. Like all these other fears are. Fear of death, obviously, is much heavier and, and bigger and all that. But fear of failure is like everybody's got it. Like I think for the most part. And it's it's pretty it's just pretty devastating. It sort of keeps you from doing anything you want to do, um, because you're afraid that you're not gonna be able to do it. And yeah. it's yet again, it's another thing I see in my kids. I mean it's definitely in me. I'm a I've got a huge fear of failure thing, which is why I do nothing at all. Um <laughs> But like in like in my kids, like they'll they'll be like, oh, I don't want to do something fairly, you know, routine. I don't want to roller skate because I'm going to fall. And it's to say, well, you know, you're you're it's it'll be fine. You will fall, um, but it'll be fine. And and they they don't they don't see it. They don't you know. And it's very difficult to overcome that fear of failure that that just drives through you all the time. And that's in a in, that's there's nothing really funny about fear of failure, but it is um, definitely uh, yeah. a, it's a dominating fear. No, it's a good choice because it it is a thing that is shared. It's shared by basically everyone in the world except for certain professional athletes. You know, like <laughs> like and, and some of them have a terror of intense fear of failure, but there's some 
I think some of the reason that some of those athletes are successful is because they just have managed to drive that fear away. Like I think like Dustin Pedroia, I think like, for example, just is like, I'm going to, I'm going to succeed every single time. And if he doesn't, it just makes him angry. It doesn't make him scared that he's going to fail again. Um, it's a good one though. It's, it's sort of like death. It is a, it is an all encompassing big, big, big picture fear. So good, good choice. Well, and you know, you, you, you brought up athletes and you're right. Look, some, some athletes are just born without it. And I think you and I talked about this at the Super Bowl actually, uh, Joe Montana in his most famous sort of scene, you know, if you're making a movie of his life, is right before the Cincinnati Bengals' final drive to win the Super Bowl. Uh, he's in the in the huddle and he turns to his teammates and he goes, oh, look, John Candy. And everybody kind of looks in the crowd and John Candy was there and everybody laughs and whatever and everybody relaxes and they go on the drive. Um, and you and I both tend to agree that that was not really an effort to – uh, calm them down or get everybody excited. It really was Joe Montana. That's how Joe Montana's mind works, that he literally, in that moment, there was no anything other than, yeah. hey, look, there's Joe Montana. So there was no fear of failure. And and I think yeah. that's the way he played. He played as much as anybody I can remember. Jordan was this way too, but the great ones have it. There is no fear of failure. None. Not even not even like, like the probably the amount that everybody should have in their lives yeah just completely gone no fear of failure at all yeah it's probably a, a a key component to a lot of sort of championship caliber athletes right it's like you don't you don't it's what keeps you from hesitating at key moments from doing what you've uh, practiced doing right that's absolutely, absolutely. oh it's uh, i wish i had that okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i'm going with number three i'm going with something that actually is personal to me uh, very personal which is the fear of getting lost I uh, have the worst sense of direction. It's not even. It's uh, not even true. I have no sense of direction. I don't have the worst. I don't. I do not have it. It's not a part of my brain that is active in any way. And like I lived in Manhattan for eight years, and Manhattan, as you may know, is a grid of straight lines with numbers. With, with numbers. numbers. With literally just numbers. I got lost constantly. Just constantly. Every time I came out of a subway. It, it would take five minutes for me to like look around. Am I in the northeast corner, the southeast? What like I would always just go. I, I got to the point where I would get out of the subway and I would just walk straight in some direction, like I knew where I was going, just because I needed to get to the next street to see if I was going the right way. And almost every time I wasn't, and I would have to turn around and go back the other way. And uh, and then I I moved downtown. And I lived close to the West Village, which is not straight lines. And there were there was more than one occasion when I would exit a bar, usually, at about 3 in the morning. And I'd be like, well, now is the time of the evening where I wander aimlessly for, for, for 90 minutes until I fig find a street that leads me home. Uh, and I, I don't know, now that I live in L.A., what I would do if I didn't have a GPS in my car or, a, you know, a, a map on my phone because... I drive the same 15-minute route to and from my house uh, to work every single day I have for seven years. And if I have to drive even one other place uh, <laughs> other than those two places, I get lost. And I'm not exaggerating. It's not like this is not a um, comic exaggeration. If I have to drive one other to one other location from my work or from my home, I will get lost. And so, and that, and that's a real, I, it's not even a fear for me anymore. It's just a sort of fact of my life. But I remember when I was a kid, because I had this, I, do, I did have a fear of it because I was extremely bad at navigating. 
anytime I was like on a camping trip or with, you know, or like a, any place where it was unfamiliar to me, I was constantly afraid because I knew that at some point I was going to exit a building and not know where I was and get lost. It's a very scary feeling for, especially for a kid. Well, you, you happen to be talking to somebody who, um, I think has, uh, at least as bad, if not worse sense of direction th- than you do. So this but, is, this it, is actually a very personal thing for me because I'm married. My wife is from a very small town in Kansas and there are not many advantages to growing up in a small town in Kansas. But one of those advantages is you are just automatically born, not just with a sense of direction, but a human, you're a human compass essentially. Right. Um, when, when we got married, we moved into our first house together and my uh, father-in-law was helping me like take the couch into the house and it was kind of getting stuck in the door. And he literally said to me, no, no, move it a little bit to your East. And I just, he might as well have just been speaking. I mean, I'm not Magellan. I mean, I, I have no idea what East, I never know what East is. The never. sun could be setting. I don't know what East is. Never, not once have I ever <laughs> known. If anyone goes, so you just get in your car, just go North. I'm north. like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I don't. And I also like, I think, I feel like you have this too. Whenever anyone says that, I'm like, do you know what that means? How does anyone know what that means? Like just, or when, when people are giving me directions and they're like, you just, okay. So you go, uh, you go down this road here and then, you, you know, just head south and you just go past this. Any any one of those words, go past, go east, go south, like look for look for this, look for that. It's like it's all it, – I might as well not be asking because it's all utterly meaningless to me because my brain – that part of my brain is an empty black hole with just spider webs and cobwebs everywhere. Like I don't – it doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it's – it really is a very scary I, – I think it is a scary thing because I – you're right. You do cross a line where you no longer are afraid of getting lost. You know you're going to get lost. The, the question is, how long will it take you to escape the loss? And by the way, the GPS thing is incredible. I mean, I have like 12 of them now that I carry around. Like I, I literally have a backup GPS going in my car at all times, just yeah. in case the first you and those GPSs could tell me drive off the bridge. And I would, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am following that GPS because there's no way I'm going on my own out there. There's yeah. no chance. Yeah, I know. And I people w- will tell me when I say I have no sense of direction and that I rely heavily on my GPS, they'll say the same thing usually, which is like, well, if you don't use the GPS, you'll never learn your way around. And my response is, no, if I don't use the GPS, I will die in the wilderness. <laughs> so like, I would rather never learn than die in the wilderness. It's a good fear. It's a good fear. We share that one. So that that's a good fear. Um, with my third fear, I'm going to go with a, a very personal fear and one that doesn't have a name. Um, and it's it's something very specific to me. I, I would imagine none of the four people listening to this will uh, will in any way be able to relate to this. But when I was uh, just starting out as a sports writer, I was at a high school in a little nowhere town in North Carolina. And I came out of the game and it was midnight or even after midnight. And my car was the only car in the parking lot. And when I got out to the car, uh, I started to go in and I looked in the back and I'm like, man, the way my jacket is set up back there, it looks like there's a person sleeping in the back of my car. And then I realized there was a person sleeping in the back of my car. And I, I didn't have any, I mean, there was nobody around. It was dark. Um, I mean, I, there was nothing to do. 
accept what I did, which I'm sure is the the way that the police would tell you to do. Of course, there were no cell phones back then either. There was nothing that I could reach out to anybody. So what I did was I went into my trunk and I got my tennis racket out because it was there. And then I opened the door and I kind of poked the guy uh, with the with the butt of the tennis racket. Not not hard, just kind of like a little poke. And I'm like, hey, man, uh, I got to go. I got I got to get out. And the guy kind of like got off and he looked at me and and he was a he was a big guy. I know I'm not I'm not misremembering that he was a pretty big guy. And he kind of looked at me and he got up out of the car. And at this point, he could have killed me. Uh, but he didn't, obviously. He said, hey, man, which, which way are you going? Can you give me a ride? And <laughs> I said, which way Which way do you need to go? And he said, I, I'm going that way. And I said, oh, man, I'm going that the other way. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was it. And he literally walked off. That was, I mean, it, it worked out like I knew exactly what I was doing. And I, every single thing I had done in that situation was wrong. Ever since then... When I get into a car, I feel in the back to make sure nobody's back there. I still have fear that there's somebody in the back of my car at all times. Like every time. And it's not like a crippling fear, but it's always like I'm driving for a little bit and I'm kind of like, man, are you sure there's nobody back? You know, I'll reach back and feel for the back of my car. So that's weird. It's like a weird fear. And I don't know why. I mean, it, it was only obviously it didn't happen more than once, but it has stayed with me. Now it's been 30 years. It has stayed with me where even now I'll be driving along the highway. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I've already checked and I'll be driving along the highway and I'm like, man, nobody's back there. Right. I mean, there's just nobody and I'll reach back. It's like very strange. I, I don't know why I would admit this. And I'm only admitting this because I know nobody's going to hear it, but, but, uh, but yeah, that's a weird fear. There's it's, no name for it, I don't think. It's weird, but it's eminently reasonable based, <laughs> based on that story. Like I don't, I don't think anyone's going to begrudge you that fear. That's insane. That was insane. That I like I like the the incredibly simple like Sesame Street way that you faked him out too. Of like, <laughs> which way are you going? Oh, this way. I, I sorry. What a bummer. I'm going the other way. <laughs> it really was very Grover like. I really felt like it was kind of something, uh, you yeah. know. And and it does. It feels like such a weird like dream because honestly i mean i was 20 whatever i was 20 probably at the time 20 or 21 and um so we're really talking 25 years ago i don't think i could do that now i think now of course i'd you know hopefully i'd have a phone now and i i don't know what i do i'd probably call the police or something i don't know what i would do but i wouldn't do that i can tell yeah. you no matter what i have lived long enough now i would not take the tennis racket out of the back poke the guy and like ask him to get out yeah, it's, it's it's a good il uh, illustrative story about how dumb you are when you're 20. Right? Like, <laughs> like when you're 20, you see a guy, you're like, well, clearly the move here is to get a tennis racket and punch him awake. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a bad one. Guy in the back of your car at number three, a, a real a real unexpected pick there. Um, I probably could have gotten that at five. If now that looking back on it, I probably could have gotten no, that a little later. You know, it's off the board at four, so you, got, <laughs> you had you had to move up there to take that in the draft. Uh, I'm gonna go with fear of dark for number four. Uh, this is sort of a little bit of a wild card, but I uh, my uh, my kids are a little bit afraid of the dark, as almost all kids are. Right, there's right. a there's a very long debate at the end of every night about how the level to which we dim the lights in their rooms. Um, I feel like it's very primal too. I feel like the reason that we're afraid of the dark 
is because when we were cavemen and women, when it got dark, like a tiger would come and eat us. It's like the most basic thing, right? You, if you can't see, you don't know what's coming. And uh, it, it extends to me not just to like just, you know, at night or whatever. It extends to a spe- another specific like corollary fear I have, which is I'm a little bit afraid of the ocean. Uh, I, I'm very afraid of the ocean. <laughs> and, and, the, <laughs> and the I'm afraid of the ocean for two reasons. One is that I feel like the ocean is a giant a relentless monster that is trying to kill you at all times and i don't see why anybody finds it fun like the second you step in it there's a tide that's literally trying to drag you out and drown you like that's its goal is to drag stuff out and, and sink it to its bottom and i i when i see kids playing in the ocean i'm like you get these parents it's like giving a kid a knife and a gun to me I, it's crazy but my specific fear of the ocean extends beyond that and gets into like if you i would never swim in the ocean like off a boat because you look down and you can't see what's beneath you. And when you when I can't see what's beneath me in the ocean, what I picture in my head is a million sharks. Just um, <laughs> one, 1. 1.4 million sharks exactly one foot below the point where I can stop seeing what's in there. And then also whatever, octopuses and squid and, and, and krakens and whatever else is in there. And that's because it's dark and you can't see it. The most basic primal thing is like if you can't see it, your brain goes to the worst possible place of what's about to attack you. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encompass all of those things into one thing, which is fear <laughs> of the dark. I think fear of the dark is, is uh, you, you almost need it. You almost need, right, yeah. this fear of the dark. I mean, it's very healthy. Yeah, I mean, it's not something you want to, you know, there, there's very little that comes out that's good in the dark, right? I mean, that's just generally, I mean, that's not 100% true. but But the dark in general is just a... Uh, it's a big giant, you know, like it's, there's this, I have this thing where if I'm in a hotel room, uh, on the road, which I, I often am, I never want the curtains all the way shut because, Mm. and it's not, it's not a fear thing, but like, I want the curtains a little bit open so that when morning comes a little bit of light will come in to the room. Uh, even though that might wake me up, I guess. Because that dark is like, I don't like, I don't like the dark. Like, I'm not, it's, I don't think it's a fear. I don't, but why would you, why would I, I love it when it's bright, you know? Like, it's like, there's a, there's just a different feeling that you get. And I'm not even talking about the whole sunlight, energy, whatever, which is also, I guess, very real. But in general, yeah, not, not a fan of the dark. I mean, I don't know who is. I guess the judge from The Natural was a fan of the dark. <laughs> so there was that, I guess. But wow, you, you pulled that out effortlessly. I really did. I, and it just popped into my head at the last second, too. <laughs> All right, that's a good choice. That's a, that's a good choice. We're now going into, like, now I think it's time for just stupid fears. Um, sure. I, I'm totally, totally scared of those freaking ventriloquist dummies. I hate them. I'm scared of them. I think they're stupid. I that's why they're called dummies. I think they're I think they're evil. They are. And and the ventriloquism is evil. I don't like anything about it. I don't I think it's you know I the whole idea of they didn't have to make these movies where the ventriloquist dummy comes to life, which you know I guess there's a bunch of those. I would never see one ever in a million years. <laughs> there was like once there was like a uh ventriloquist dummy come to life on fantasy island i remember that when i was a kid and i'm still not over it i'm still totally not over it and by the way nobody should have let me watch fantasy island that show was really filled with a lot of like 
just fear-based evil. Yeah, that show is often very scary. Very scary. Yeah. Very scary. And yeah. they, you know, you had the little guy with the plane to play. No, that was that show was scary. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I, so I, but I think you didn't even need all that because you're basically infusing life into this little talking wooden thing with the mouth opening, and it, I, I don't like the, I don't like puppets. I don't like any of those kinds. I mean, I like the Muppets. I mean, I like those kinds of puppets, but string puppets and those little talking dummies and. Yeah, my my imagination goes right to them coming to life and killing you pretty quickly. From- yeah, it's like not an accident that a lot of horror movies are about like dolls coming to life or right. whatever. Like they're they're creepy, they're weird, <laughs> and uh, you know that they're they're this weird link to this like old timey kind of like vaudevillian circus past that where like that was like the best that was the most entertaining thing that you could offer people in you know in eighteen seventy nine. Or whatever, and now we have way better options for, for 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 entertainment, and they should just be all of them should be rounded up and and tossed into an incinerator. <laughs> In my opinion, they're creepy and they're gross, and that and I don't like them. I totally totally agree. <laughs> and by the way, like what about that Punch and Judy thing? Like that was once like that was yeah, Parks and yeah. Rec. That was Parks and Rec of like the 17th century. Yeah, the, and... all the stuff is weird and un, and unpleasant. I <laughs> like I'm with you on this. I think it's a good choice. Um. Yeah, I don't like wax dummies either. By the way, no. wax, wax statue like Madame Tussauds, like I, I, I don't like that. I imagine those coming to life sometimes and like marching <laughs> down Hollywood Boulevard and attacking people. It's just all bad. Anything that like there's a word for this because I looked this up. This was this was on my board. It's automatonophobia. It's a fear of of anything that falsely represents a like a, a human, basically like a dummy or a doll or a puppet or a uh, animatronic, like those Chuck E. Cheese animatronic creatures, anything like that. <laughs> And and it's because all you think about is like these things are to come to life and strangle me, and then I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, no, I I'm totally that's it's 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 unnecessary. Okay, that's that's the bottom line on it. And people who really really like that stuff, which I guess there are people who who really like that stuff. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I don't want to know you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. For my final pick, I'm I'm switching up the the um I'm switching up the premise a little bit, I guess. And now I'm taking the thing that I think is the dumbest fear in the world. <laughs> And that is the uh, that is the fear of the number thirteen, <laughs> uh, triskaidekaphobia. Um, there, this is the weirdest thing about our culture. I really believe this. I think this is the weirdest thing that exists pervasively in American culture, which is that there is there aren't buildings with thirteenth floors. Now, obviously, there are. They're just called the fourteenth floor. But there's no number thirteen in an elevator. This is the we- think about how weird that is for a second. Like. The number we have all agreed that the number thirteen is so scary, so like portentous, and so full of like bad juju that we don't allow our buildings to be labeled with that number. That is bonkers. Like people don't wear people don't wear like uniform. Like A Rod wears thirteen, which maybe that's maybe he's contributing to the problem. But when I was a kid, I remember thinking how stupid this was. I specifically requested number thirteen in Little League because. <laughs> I was like, this is so dumb. Who cares? Why is this number weird? I don't, it's, and it's so, like, people who are not superstitious will refuse to, you know, use the number 13 if, like, if they're Delta, you know, uh, if they're given a number to Delhi and it's number 13, they'll throw it away and take 14. Like, it's so bizarre. And, and I don't even know at this point in 2015, like, what is the evidence for the number 13 being bad besides A Rod? Like, <laughs> 
literally, what is it? Who can point to something? There was a whole movie about it. There was a movie called The Thirteenth Floor. Like, it's so weird. It's such a bizarre thing. And the and I and frankly, the reason I'm choosing this at, at, at for my draft is I don't think anyone's actually scared of the number thirteen. <laughs> I think they, I think everyone is taught to not like it, and then it's just kept going from from whatever time immemorial. And now we're just accepting of it. I think it should stop. I think people should just say, this is stupid. This is the 13th floor of this building. Nothing bad is going to happen on the 13th floor that wouldn't happen if it were called the 14th floor. <laughs> I think we need to like we need to move forward and, and end this once and for all. Are you with me? I am with you. I am with you. I, I think of it as there are so many things that we look back uh, through, you know, hundreds of years where you go back and you go, boy, they believed that you wanted to sacrifice virgins to a sun god, okay? Right. And we go, man, that's so stupid. That's just right. so incredibly, it's harmful as well, but so incredibly stupid. And there's so many of those things that we go, boy, back then they knew nothing. And the, this, the, the, the number 13, probably more than any of them, because it is so uh, saturated our culture, is, yeah. is I mean absolutely uh as stupid i mean it is on that level it is it is something left over from like the dark ages that we still do and it seems to be we you're right nobody's afraid of it at this point it's like we've sort of accepted like you know what this is a part of what it is to be human right yeah. this is this is we have accepted this as sort of a tradition that we like which is we're all going to be afraid of the number 13 yeah, that we just we just accept it blindly that it's somehow bad, and it doesn't make any sense. It's not bad. There's nothing. It's just a number. It's two numbers. No one's scared of one. No one's scared of three. But put them together, and everyone's like, "Well, we can't obviously we can't engage in that situation." It's it's so crazy to me. And you're right. It's like it's literally not different from hey, if we dance around in a circle, then the gods will make it rain. It's the same exact thing, and you're totally right that we think that these old superstitions were in, uh, seem so quaint and silly, and we're absolutely engaging in, in every day of our lives. Every time we get into a building and we want to go to the 13th floor and we have to press 14, we're engaging in the same exact kind of behavior. It's, it is, it's an excellent uh, stupid fear uh, and, and a very good choice number five. I actually wrote down some stupid fears as well um, to go with my number five pick. Um, among those being fear of heaven, which I, uh, that one, the fact that they had to like come up with a name for what that is, the fear of heaven is, is, is so weird on so many different levels. I mean, you have to believe in heaven to be afraid of it. And if you believe in heaven, how could, why would you be, what is that? That makes no sense at all. Yeah. Fear of hearing good news is like really a stupid, stupid fear. That's pretty uh, bad, yeah. That I don't get. Fear of happiness is along those same lines. Um, but the the one that I'm going to go – by the way, I, I, this is not the one I'm going to choose. But I, I was thinking of fear of decisions because I think that's like there's a, there's a pretty cool like overall thinking. I think we all have these fear of decisions. It, it sort of gets at us uh, in a different way. Fear of decisions is actually decidophobia, and I don't buy it. I don't. That's <laughs> that's that's way too made up. So, now, but, but before you give your final answer, where are you? Uh, where are you on fear of flying? Not at all. I have no fear of flying. I mean, have, that's, you, ever, have you ever? 
No, no. I mean, and I, it's weird because I fear of everything. I mean, really. I mean, you know, I like I fear the ocean. I fear of snakes. I fear of spiders. I fear of basically everything, but not heights. And honestly, and you tell me, this is probably really stupid. When I get on a plane, I feel really safe. I mean, then look, it's no fun when you go through going through some real turbulence, and maybe then I would have a different feeling about it. But I feel really safe because it is obviously the safest way to travel. But much more to the point, there are people out there who they say their fear is based on this powerlessness that they would have if something would happen. And this is probably just a very bad part of my sort of well-being and thinking. But I don't want to be in power if things (laughs) go wrong. I I want a trained professional in power. There's nothing... uh, including writing that I feel like so confident in myself that I'd want lots of people to be like relying on me for like in order to survive. So I get on the plane and look, I don't want to think too hard about the pilots getting paid like 12 bucks an hour or whatever. And, and, and maybe had a bad day and, and all of the various stories you hear. I don't want to think too much about that. In my mind, there is a trained professional at the wheel um, or whatever it is that they use to fly the plane. And I want that person there. I don't want to be there. I, I'm happily giving my life to his hands and feeling good about it. Yeah. Or, or I, her I, hands or her hands. That right. I, I feel the same way. And I have, uh, I, I went through like a, a year of my life when I was like 25 when suddenly I was like a little afraid of flying, not wow. cripplingly. And it came out of nowhere. I'd never been afraid of flying. And then it sort of went away. And I was like, well, oh, right. <laughs> like <laughs> it was very weird. It was just, I don't know what was, some, was clearly some other thing going on in my life or whatever that was causing me to be a, a little bit afraid of it. But and it, was, it was never crippling. I never like didn't fly somewhere because I was afraid of flying, but I would just be like a little more nervous and anxious. And then after about a year, like four or five flights, it kind of disappeared. It's very, very interesting. Did you have, did you have a bad experience? No, it really wasn't a bad experience or anything. It was, there was no reason for it. Like most fears, it was completely irrational. I did t- I, someone did t- tell me on the back end of the year, someone said to me, like, uh, I was talking about turbulence, and someone said, like, just think of it like you're a boat and you're on water. Like, that's what <laughs> boats do when they're on water, right? They kind of bounce up and down because water is the thing that keeps boats in the, uh, like, afloat. And I was like, oh. And then when we would go through turbulence, I would just picture a boat on water, and that really helped, and then it went away. I am afraid of boats, so that would not help me. I don't know. I it's it's a really good point. It seems to me, if you think about it, we should be afraid of flying, right? I mean, that's there is there is no there is no real conceivable uh, explanation in our minds for why we are in the air, right? I mean, that's for a for a human being. That's that should be that should be very scary and and very you know and, and obviously we you, you do it a lot and maybe some of that goes away, but I've honestly. I've just never had that fear. Um, and, and it's weird. It's sort of, it's sort of like I was given that one thing because every, you were afraid of everything else, but that you're not afraid of. So, yeah. All right. So my choice, my last one is going to be a stupid one. Um, I'm going to go with macrophobia, which is the uh, fear of long waits. And (laughs) I know that's really kind of like, we've been talking about really crippling fear, um, the kinds of things that, 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 you know, you, you act on or whatever. Um, I don't think there's anything more in my life that I act on than the, my fear of long waits. I, I do not, I will not do anything essentially that will lead me to a long wait. So that will lead me to being way early at the airport, 
Um, it'll lead me to making reservations well in advance of where I'm planning going to dinner. It will lead me to um, leaving at a ridiculous time to avoid rush hour traffic, even though if I went in rush hour traffic, I would actually spend less time uh, actually going to my destination. Um, it does all kinds of things that it has this very big effect on me. And I don't, for a while there, I thought, well, this is just, you know, nobody likes to wait. But I, I think now that I've realized that there is actually a fear of this, I think I have it. I think I do. I think I do not like, I just, the idea of seeing a crowd, I, I, I do get this feeling when I see it like a really crowded place and I need to go in there. And maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit of a, of a uh, fear of closed spaces or something. I don't know. But I see like a really crowded place and I'm like, oh my God, that's an hour wait. This feeling comes over me like it, they could have, they could be giving like the most delicious food ever made. I'm not going in there. There's no chance I'm going to wait an hour for anything at this point in my life. So fear of waiting, big, big part but of my life. Here's here's the question though. It, uh, I'm not going to quibble too much, but is it a, just a, is it a fear or is it just an intense dislike? Probably an intense dislike. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not afraid of it. Like you know, right. it's like, you're not afraid that something bad is gonna. I guess you're like phobic can also just mean that you're not. You want to avoid it. So I, I I I don't know. I feel like I, I feel like it counts. I'm just I'm curious as to what the <clears throat> there are, between there are... a fear and something you just don't don't want to do. Well, you're right. I mean, it's not. I mean, I I will do it, and I will not be shaking the whole time while I'm waiting. So. But but it is something that other people seem to have a much... Nobody likes to wait, obviously. Yeah. But other people seem to have much more of a tolerance for waiting on stuff. Like they're, like something is so is good enough at the end that they think it's worth the wait. And obviously, I we all do that. I do that plenty in my life where, okay, well, I'm going to the Springsteen show. So in order to get there, I'm going to have to wait and do all this. So I get it. But... I really believe that I probably will go more out of my way to avoid that way. Like, how are you on weights? Are you are you okay with a weight? I don't love them, but I have pretty. I have like very low blood pressure, and I like I I don't get like I don't get overly annoyed. I'm like fine in a grocery <laughs> store or whatever. I it's only really a problem when I'm with my kids because your kids get so impatient, and then that makes you a little more impatient, and you're trying to sort of manage them too, but. I kind of, I don't know, my, I let my mind wander off and I kind of like, you know, I don't, I, it doesn't, it's not a thing that drives me nuts. I have a pretty high tolerance for waiting in line. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing because I got to say when I am actually waiting, I'm not, I'm not like horrible. I'm not miserable or, you know, I do the same thing. I'm and I'm not, you know, I'm there once, once I've accepted that I'm going to have to wait, right I'm pretty good about it. I mean, it's not, it doesn't, it's not like the worst Thing. So it's more anticipatory then. Yeah, right? yeah. I just I I fear it. I think I do fear it. I fear waiting. And then once I get there, it's sort of like, you know, I'm still scared. I didn't put this in there. I'm still scared of needles. Like I don't like needles at all. I'm I'm always convinced whenever people talk about steroids and they say, Oh, would you have used steroids? And I'm no chance I would have used steroids, and not because I feel like I'm morally any better. I'm not letting a needle near me for Yeah, but what about the cream and the clear, man? There's the, we've made advances what? now. You can you can I, do this I, stuff. I might have, I might have done that. I'm not saying I wouldn't have done that, but I'm not doing the needles. Plus, you, I don't. I'm not the cream of the clear to me. I'm still not buying it. I, there's, I'm not. I'm looking. I'm no scientist, but I'm not buying it. It's, it to me, the store, the steroids that we're talking about, man, you have to inject you, and I'm not. 
I'm not getting injected voluntarily for anything. There's no chance. I have some interesting news. I, as you were just wrapping up, I crunched the numbers on this, on our draft. <laughs> dead tie. An absolute dead heat. We each got 117.48 points. That's in incredible. Our first time it's ever happened. That is really the first time it has ever happened. And, and, and it's the right draft for it to happen with. <laughs> All right. Well, this was great. Congratulations again on uh, on your team's Super Bowl victory, and you were there to see it. That had to be is that is that the greatest sporting like live experience you've ever had? Unquestionably, yeah. and and I've and again reminding myself how lucky I am that my teams have been so successful. It just so happens I've never been at any sort of like I've never been at like the final game of World Series. I've never been at the I was at the 2003 AFC Championship game in Foxborough when Ty Law picked off Peyton Manning three times and they advanced to the Super Bowl the year they beat Carolina. Um, and uh, that that was the next best compared to this, and that's now a very distant second because <laughs> that was just a, like a well-played game where the Patriots won at home. But I, you know, I this is easily the most sort of exciting and wonderful live sporting event I'd ever seen, so it was pretty special. It's way too long, but I do have to ask you one last thing. Please. How, how sure were you that they were going to lose? 100.0%. I mean, they, you know, uh, this has been talked about to death, but the buildup for Patriots fans going into that game was it's the Tyree Stadium. Like, it's the, you know, this is the stadium where the Tyree catch happened that denied them 19 and 0, blah, 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 blah. And so when Curse made that catch, which was at the opposite end of the stadium from where I was sitting, I was just like, well, the, I actually almost walked out. Like, I, there, was, there was literally no question in my mind. He was at the five yard line, they had a minute left. I was like, it's it's going to happen. Not only is it going to happen, it's going to happen in the same stadium in exactly the same way, in exactly the same scenario. You know, in the game against the Giants, the second game against the Giants, rather, not the Tyree game, they got the ball back with whatever, you know, a few seconds left and no timeouts. And I was like, and it was so sad to watch them, uh, you know, try to bomb their way down the field, which is not the way they like to do business or any team would. And I was just like, I don't think I can see like the kick the touchdown and the celebration and the kickoff and the patriots will have you know 14 seconds and no timeouts i don't want to watch that unfold like and i almost left i mean i wouldn't have really left but i was right, like right. I, I it was just so disheartening there was absolutely no question in my mind that they were going to lose which is obviously what makes the ending so amazing is it went the win probability went from whatever it was 9% to 100% in 1 second so it was pretty incredible. I think that's how I would feel. I think I would feel it was over, absolutely over. And because I, because the only compare, you know, obviously none of my teams have ever won, but the only comparable one for me was John Elway having the ball at the two yard line with three, four minutes left, right. uh, down a touchdown, and that was like ninety three percent, right? I mean, it's like they're going to win this game. And he had not moved the ball all game. Right, they're going to win this game. Pretty sure. But, you know, they, that's that's a legitimate amount of time for a, for a player to, you know, like John Elway to drive down the field. Yeah. This was 100%. This, when they, especially when they were at the one-yard line with three plays and, and basically all it really was about was running the clock out. So it was, it was over. You, that's, you went from 100 to, to, to zero in like one second. Yeah. It's really amazing. I mean, it, it really like it, – it, I don't – know that there will ever be a greater swing on one play in the NFL. I mean, before this, it was, 
it was the Titans and the Rams, right? But even that, the, they were it was a touchdown difference. That would have only tied the game. Tied the game exactly. This, this was the end. This was it's over. Forget it. Go home. And um, it was uh, it was pretty special. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, the rest of the country hates you. And um, <laughs> thanks again for doing this. All right. Thank you.